Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Friday. It is September the 8th. And we are rocking and rolling. We have a special guest for you today. I think you're going to very much enjoy it. We kind of alluded to this on Wednesday. This is going to be a, a topic that most Americans are going to be very interested in. And so with you all's permission, we're going to uh, push Steve Friend just a little bit later into the show, our buddy, uh, the the famous uh, co-host and guest host that was there just a minute ago. And we're going to be bringing on our guest right now. We're going to push our sponsors even to the middle because I think we're going to take all the minutes that we can. Uh, Tom, if you want to jump on the screen here with me and Ryan uh, got us all squared away. Tom, I, I uh, phonetically sounded out your name. It looks like it's got like a Polish uh, connotation to it. Is it Kubinik? In Poland, the Kubinets, and here it's Kubinik. Kubinek. Okay, fantastic. Yes, yes. It's it's even less churched up than I gave it. Uh, Tom is go. the founder and the CEO of Secure at Storage, which is a company that I've been using for several years now. It was uh, when I made my investment in um, in gun storage. This is where I went. So my listeners were, have been kind of asking me, hey, you know, who do we use? Now that we know that Liberty has decided to uh, take their name and swap it with Tyranny, kind of the uh, the ultimate Bud Light move this uh, this week for a company that was kind of pitching themselves as something else. So before we get into the security aspect of it, I want to talk about you specifically and just kind of get to know who you are as a person because you founded a safe company and that is not something that everybody does. Could you tell us where you grew up, uh, where where you're from and kind of what kind of family you came out of? Um, I grew up in Western New York um, from a uh, just basic middle-class family and, uh, you know, one car, two dogs, a cat. And, uh, I was a professional guitar player as a, when I was young. I played guitar when I was 13, played in bands in high school, and turned that pursued that as a career, ending up in Hollywood um, as a heavy metal guitarist. Uh, tendonitis ended my career. I got into took a job telemarketing because I had no other, I had no skills, and they would hire anybody. And uh, instead of practicing guitar for eight hours a day, I just learned sales. Built And I quit that job and started a telemarketing company in my apartment, built that up to a decent sized company, got into the Internet, started selling laptop storage, tape racks and just various products that I just could find, source and sell. A guy called me and said, hey, can you store an MP5? And I was like, sure. What's an MP5? I had no idea. He goes, it's a little machine gun. I started <laughs> laughing. And he, uh, this and this I, went I, from I, MP3. We were listening to music, MP4 exactly. video, and then it, the, it escalated quickly to machine guns. I'm thinking this is a laptop and this is a hospital calling me because of all the HIPAA laws. And uh, so I talked to him for about 20 minutes and I said, give me some time on this. I'm, I'm just intrigued. And back then, this is before Google. It was Yahoo was the main search engine. I started doing research and there was a lot of information about the military struggling as they transition from the M16 standard battle rifle to the M4, which is really a modular weapon system. Mm -hmm. And all the armories were not designed for this, a, a modular fire weapon and all the optics, all the high value gear that now had to be stored in an armory. So I started pursuing weapon storage, knowing nothing about it. Um, and worked with a Canadian company to design our first system. We launched that in like 2003, and we were on this huge learning curve um, working with a Canadian firm, and the design wasn't right for the U.S. military. Um, in 2008, I designed and patented what became the Secure Tactical Weapon Storage Platform, which is now we simply call Cradle Grid. Patented in 2008, by 2011, we were the primary supplier to the U.S. military 
for weapon storage systems. And, uh, you know, Secure It Now is the global leader in military weapon storage and armory design. Uh, in 2015, we went into consumer products really out of frustration with what the safe industry was producing. Um, and our consumer, civilian, that part of our business now is 85% of the company. We still, you know, we look at focus. We focus on the warfighter and making sure these guys have what they need. But the bulk of our company is taking 25 years of military experience in that in that world and bringing that to the consumer market because the transition that the military went through in you know the Gulf War at that time, the consumers, civilians go through the same transition and it delays you know anywhere from 10 to 15 years or so. But now civilian firearms are they're modular. Everybody's got optics. The volume of gear coming into our space is growing exponentially. So our solution that really changed the military and completely changed the way they think about armories is now doing the same thing in the consumer market. It's we're bringing fast access, lightweight modular storage and uh, and just a different mindset. We approach it the way we approach an armory, a military armory. Your home is your armory. And we try to look at it as a turning it into a defendable fortress. I like that idea a lot. My buddies always used to joke that my my house should actually be nicknamed Arsenal. I don't know why they thought that was the, it wasn't Armory, it was Arsenal. And so my Wi-Fi network for years has always been known as Arsenal. So if you're ever in my neighborhood, people, and you go looking around and you see FBI surveillance fan, that's not me, I'm Arsenal. And uh, I think it's really an interesting point because I think the gun industry has changed in the same way that the safe industry does. It's slow. There's that sort of FUD, I guess that's kind of the internet slang for the guy who still has the hunting rifle and it's got like an old Leopold, you know, three to 10 on it or something and or three to nine. And that's and that's the guy that they're marketing to. That's the Cabela's and the, and the Bass Pro. But they're fast realizing that there's a lot more guys like me out there who have a set of night vision, you know, on a, on a helmet and they've got a bunch of modular ARs with lasers and and thermal and different things like that. So. Um, it's interesting that you guys change. Why is the market so behind the the consumer trends on the firearm side? The firearms are, are, are there. People can buy them today. They can go get, you know, they can go get a Sig Rattler. They can go get, uh, you know, a spear or something like that. That's that's currently being fielded. And yet the safes still have like a two inch standoff, <laughs> and they're still trying to basically put up a bunch of Browning hunting rifles. The the gun safe industry has never really gone through a change. They've been doing the same system since the mid seventies, is when the kind of the birth of the of the what I call the modern gun safe industry. I think the biggest driver of it is when you look at gun safe companies, they're not owned and run by firearms enthusiasts or even by people in the firearms community. They're run by guys whose background is metal bending, cabinet making, steel work. That's kind of where it all grew out of a company in um, in Utah. You know, Liberty came, they all came out of, you know, Fort Knox, all these companies came out of the same little incubator and it was around building metal boxes. And that's what they do. And they focus on metal boxes. But there's, you know, early on when we decided to go into retail, I met with the senior team at Liberty. They invited me out. One of their product development guys loved what I was doing. And I went out there. I didn't know the retail space. I figured, let me just partner with Liberty, license my technology to them. They know the space and let them run with it. You know, meeting with their senior team, not one of them owned an AR-15, hmm. and more than half of them had never owned a gun. Um, that seems like a big they, failure. You know, saying, yeah, well, they came to me to say, Tom, your system in our safe only holds 12 guns. We're looking at a fat boy junior. And I said, well, with all due respect, 
your safe holds 12 guns. I said, Tom, that's a 36 gun safe. I said, no, I said, there's no way you're going to hold 36 guns of any kind in that safe. And their head of sales, who I believe now is their, is their president, I'm not sure, but I think he is the same guy, said, well, Tom, that's our industry's little white lie. And right there, this my, my switch turned off and I was like, wow, um, you know, that's the industry. They don't, I mean, I don't know how they view their customers. Their customers are smarter than they think, but their idea is, hey, if they say 40 guns, we'll say 42. The hell with the customer. The customer doesn't, doesn't matter. It's what's, what's the rest of the industry doing? Because if you notice, every gun safe has basically the same interior. Right. And they're no, all marketed. They're all marketed the same way. It's a number of yeah, guns that is unreasonable for a real person. Absolutely. Unless you just so stack we, a bunch of handgun boxes in. Yeah. I mean, we came into the space from a world, you know, in the military, I'm designing a system to hold 1100 M4s, you know, 200, 249, so, you know, all a specific MTO list of guns. Right. If my system doesn't exactly hold those guns, I don't get paid. The other side of it is, I need to design a system where all the guns are deployable. They're all, you can issue the weapons. Armories are active places. So we use terms like straight line access. With every safe we make, guns are never stacked behind guns. You open the door with one hand, grab a rifle with the other, remove it, close and lock the door with your other hand. You're never laying guns on the floor. You're never dealing with the mess. And that's what we bring to everything we do. So you know, we don't make a 40 gun safe. If you've got 40 guns, buy two or three, four small modular safes and then locate them in your home in areas that give you a tactical advantage. We have a whole area of our website that talks about decentralized storage and the principles about storing guns in locations that put you in a better position to defend your home. The beauty of it is the most tactical positions in your home to secure firearms are also some of the safest. You know, when you look at somebody breaking into your home, thieves don't look in closets. They don't look in kitchens. They don't, there's, I mean, they're very, it's very specific what a thief does. Master bathroom, master bedroom, master bedroom closet, home office, dining room, and they leave the house. And that's pretty standard on, you know, I pull all that from FBI crime data. And, that, and that's so what I loved most about watching your, like, so I went through your website. I used to be a surveillance guy, which means I got a lot of time sitting down, waiting on a bad guy to move, a lot of time on websites. And I watched everything you guys had in 2018 and 2019. I think I ended up buying in early 2020. Uh, maybe it was a little earlier than that. I have to double check. But I ended up going with the the, the cradle grid system that you have because this is the way I'm, we're showing it on the screen right now, folks. This is the way I organize my things as well. I agree with you. I want to be able to open the safe, grab my thing and move on. I don't want to lean it against the safe and have it fall over and and break a $3,000 optic or, or, you know, off off my zero. And your stuff started making a ton of sense for a couple of reasons. One, you talked about the difference between what a real safe is and what a like a retail security container is. I think that's kind of the differentiation. So maybe we can talk right. about that. And then the second one was the, st uh, the statistics on what criminals do and who steals your gun and what the purpose of your security system is. And those all are going to mean a lot, I think, to my uh, to my audience. So maybe you can break down, first of all, what is that uh, the difference between a safe and sort of the, that uh, that RSC? Yeah, the all safe, all... 99.9% .9 of all gun safes in America are UL class RSC. UL establishes safe ratings. UL is run, is run by the insurance industry, so insurance companies can properly assess risk and write insurance policies. So they came up with the class RSC when the gun safe industry came out. And it stands for residential security container. The word safe is not part of the designation because back when they created this, 
it was their position that these residential security containers did not meet the minimum performance to be called a safe. What the standard is for a RSC, which is all of your liberties, your can, all your safe sold is it blocks access from a person using a hammer of less than three pounds, a pry bar of less than 18 inches, and a small hand drill for five minutes. That's a 1945 threat level. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really think about it, in the modern world, I'm going to come in. If I want to break into a safe, I'm going to ignore the door. I'm going to ignore all the bolts. I'm going to ignore the plate steel on the door, the anti-drill, all the security stuff. I'm simply going to get a circular saw, cheap circular saw. I'm going to go to Home Depot and buy a carbide blade that's used in the concrete industry to cut rebar. And I'm going to cut a two by two hole, two foot by two foot hole in the side of the safe. It's going to take me about between 20 and 30 seconds to cut that hole. I can cut a, I can cut like I cut a Liberty Fat Boy Jr. completely in half, cut the whole top off it in a minute, eight seconds. I cut a hole in the side. I'm good at it, about 18 seconds. When you look at actual break-in data on safes, it's hard to find. It's 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 not public, but safes aren't pride. They're not, you know, safes are cut open. And we use the same steel as everybody else. We're all using the same gauge steel and we make the same boxes. And my safes are as susceptible to saw blades as everybody else's. But my safes are small, modular, and they're shallow because we do one row of guns. So my safes all fit in discrete locations. A thief's enemy is time. They don't have hours in your house. The average thief is in a home for nine minutes. So they're moving quickly. The minute they find something of value, they typically grab that. They've won. Now the clock is really ticking. All they want to do is get out of the house. Mm-hmm. Gun safes, you know, front hall closet. Thieves don't look in closets. Kitchen pantry, great location. Thieves never go into kitchens. If you got, you know, if you got a lot of values, a big watch collection or some high-end jewelry, don't put it in your master bedroom cl- closet. That's that's a number two location. Put it in, take your little jewelry box, put it in your kitchen pantry. You're safer there. Unlock. No right, reason, right next to your no, blender. Nobody wants to steal your Fruit Loops, you know. It's That's just not how it works. No, hundred percent. Uh, yeah, you know, we just again, I didn't come from this industry. You know, I didn't. I didn't come from the firearms industry. I was a musician, and I got into storage. I've always been real big in the spatial relations and the. Uh, you know, I equate a lot of like being a musician, spatial skills, understand playing jazz, playing more advanced music. Having really good spatial relations allows you to frame things three dimensionally, and I think it really, I think it really helps. And uh, I think same thing with computer programming. The ability to think three dimensionally and programming allows you to view databases differently and gives you an advantage. So I came into this space, and I just think of it as common sense, but I didn't have that background of how the gun is supposed to be stored. I designed my first system having never seen a military weapon rack. And when we presented our cradle grid, our secure tactical platform, we presented it to USAFIC, which U.S. Army Special Forces Command, which is now just part of SOCOM. Mm-hmm. We walked in, presented our system, and we didn't know if they were going to love it, like it, or, or laugh at us. And they just lit up with what we had done. Of course. And, uh, 
and we were off to the races. I mean, it makes perfect sense when you see it. Like what's fun is you you talk about that sort of mindset that people get locked in because yeah. they're in that industry. This is the way it's done. Uh, uh, in many ways, yours looks more like a guitar center, the way that you'd go into a retail store and see all the things laid out nicely <laughs> where you could access it. I mean, that's how you'd store guitars. You'd hang them all up in a place where you can so grab them off the rack, right? There's something to that. My, my, my home office is, and I use Cradle Grid because it does hold guitars. I've oh, got- I bet. Uh, Lynch's Strat, a couple of Telecasters. I've got guitars and then long range precision rifles all on a big wall. And uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, I mean, but, it makes uh, it makes perfect sense. The other thing is, is it's got almost a Hollywood flair to it. If people see these, we're throwing some uh, images up from your website. Yeah. And it's like what people would expect a really cool gun room, a gun vault would look like. And yep. it's accessible. You can take them off. It's great for retail. Hey. But man, there's nothing better than being able to access your firearm, take it, do a bolt check and then put it back down and know that it's good to go and safe. And where you can not bang into other yeah. stuff when you grab it. It's um, it, it it does look good. I'll tell you what we we do a lot of Hollywood sets. We did John Wick. We did the Terminator movies. We did uh, a Ben Affleck film there in South America. Um, so Hollywood, we used to have a whole collection of racks that we'd ship to Hollywood, and they'd ship them back because they don't want new stuff. They want armories to look used. So we had a whole like twenty six big cabinets that we would send to movie sets. And during the Terminator movie, the, the their, their production crew bought all the cabinets and kept them. Nice. So we never got them back after yeah, I mean, that, that movie. Yeah, that checks out. I, I would too. Yeah. All right. So uh, that's this is the product. I didn't mean for this to be a promo yep. as much as anything else, but yep. we might as well because it's, like I said, it's something I use every day. I love it. I'm able to get into my guns and, and mess with them all the yep. time. And people know that I'm kind of a gun guy. I've got one of your safes right now that I'm actually dealing with your uh, with your customer service. This is how this all came about for me. The day before the Liberty debacle, this is very fortuitous and interesting. Yeah. I've got four of your Agile boxes. The idea mm -hmm. behind it made sense. I can cut them open if I really had to, and I know that it's, it's accessible to a thief that way. And right. yet, no one's going into one of my weird bedrooms that doesn't make sense where there's a cradle and a crib and these kind of things, and they're going to go in and try and pull the thing that we're showing on the screen right now. So I reached out to your guys and I said, hey, uh, I'm in the middle of a move. I've got like some stuff in boxes and somewhere I have misplaced my keys. And one of my four batteries is no longer working. Do you guys have a key set? If I give you my order number and all my backup information, can you send me another key? And they said, no, you're, you know, buy a new lock set and you have to know the combination of your own safe. And I went, that's great. I actually felt really good about that, that it was going to be difficult because I knew it was my own bonehead mistake. And if I had to tear the safe apart, it's my own fault. I, I knew that. Um, or I had to you know, tear the box apart. And right. then we see right afterwards, Liberty is uh, surrendering wow. a backdoor access to yeah. the FBI, which is my former employer. And I have a lot of distrust for the government because I worked in the government and I know better. You just don't give things to the government. So maybe you can talk about the mindset that you guys had going into your lock set and the way you have it set up. And then if you were surprised to find out that Liberty was holding on to backdoor keys. Well, I knew, I knew that they had that capacity. Um, our secure locks, our proprietary locks have no capacity for additional codes. They just, we didn't program them that way. Now we do use Securum locks, which is the same lock that Liberty uses on a few of our products. Okay. And it's not a bad lock. Um, in our case, when we started the relationship with Securum, they presented the locks to us that this is what it is, and this is the user code, and this is the master code. The master code is the one the manufacturer keeps. And you know, I had at the time my two, my number two and my my in number two in the company and my head of ops, we all looked at each other and I'm like, I don't want to manage a database of codes to my safes. My, you know, my number two in the company looked at me, he says, I don't want that liability. The ops guy is like, wait a minute, you want me to build a database? No. And we just said, why would we do this? And we really weren't thinking about like safety and security. We're thinking about just liability of 
why do why would we want to be able to access one of our customers' safes? Like FBI, this never occurred to us. And we just said the simple answer is don't do it. I mean, we weren't thinking downrange. We were just thinking right now, we're a young, fast-growing small company. We don't want this responsibility. We don't want this liability. And uh, in hindsight, it was a, it was the right decision. But now, now I posted a few videos recently calling out the industry. Um, and I looked at some websites, and it appears that most of the, the big safe manufacturers are keeping access codes. That's so crazy um, to you, think, though. Read, when you read into their websites, like I was posing the question, why am I required to register a safe to get a warranty? I don't register my guns, but all the safe manufacturers want you to register your safe and, and they're asking for a lot of personal information. At secure, well, there's no registration policy. We honor our warranty. We don't ask, hey, where'd you get this? We just say, what's, what's wrong? Let's fix it. Warranty claims are so rare. And I think they're rare for everybody. Why worry about whether this person is the original buyer or not? This guy's got guns, he's got a safe, something's up, solve the problem, get this guy back, you know, get this guy back and actually that's kind of our, comes from our military heritage of what's best for the warfighter, what's best for the home defender. Fix the problem, if it costs me a hundred bucks, I don't care. These claims are so rare and the goodwill I get when somebody buys my, maybe somebody buys my safe at a garage sale from somebody who didn't need it. And they get it. Maybe they can't afford to spend the money for a new one. You know what? If he's got a problem, I want to solve it. Because you know what? He's going to go to his friends and say, tell you what, I bought it used and I called these guys. They took care of everything. This is old That's school sales basics. It is. It's, you know, I look at, you know, we use, it's the uh, the old Orvis or the old Land's Annual, you know, those early catalog companies that ruled the world because of customer service. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we look at it. And you look at our social media posts and people talking about our team. We have a small customer service team and they're rock stars. And I gave them the authority early on to just say, look, it's not about the cost. It's about the customer and solve, solve the problem. Solve the problem as quickly as you can. We're talking about firearms. We'll deal with the cost later. Just get, get, get the problem solved. And, uh, we do that all the time. And so, you know, sometimes people can't get into a safe and we've had some situations where some of our bigger safes had to be cut open. Sure. It's very, very rare. And in those cases, we had scratch and dent product in our warehouse. We were able to remove a door and send it to the customer at no charge. Now, awesome. can we do that all the time? No, but the opportunity was there. And for us, we put customer service into a bubble. When there's a problem, you focus on that problem and you solve that problem. Meaning if I got to go back in the warehouse, hey, you guys, get the safe off that old thing. We're going to throw it away, box it up and ship it to this guy. Like, huh? Just just get it done. OK. And they stop what they're doing. Solve the problem. And uh, it's worked. For, it's worked for us. Um, the goodwill that I see coming from people when I talk to people, I have so many people come up to me and with stories about they had a problem and they just say, thank you, you guys, your customer service guys just got me out of a out of a jam. And so. they answer the phone. I just talked to Steven yesterday and I was like, uh, yeah. I reached out, I, I dialed the number, yeah. I pushed the button, whatever it is for customer service uh, or technical support. I get somebody on the phone right away. Yeah. I think there was a guy named either Brian or Brandon that I spoke to the day before that. Yep. And uh, both great guys, knowledgeable, understood their product. That's what you could hope yeah. for. They don't speak with a, an accent from the Philippines, which was nice for me. Because <laughs> I used to no, work for Dell. Not. I used to sell computers too. I, I know exactly uh, what that's about. It's like, oh man. Get it's, your it's, you know, Language barriers are tough and all. I'll tell you what, Steven is a rock star in the company. He is my oldest employee. 
He's been with me longer than any. He's been with me for a long time. And uh, he didn't come out of the firearms community. He came out of a research lab. He's a, he's a retired uh, former military. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure he wanted to work for us initially. He came and interviewed and we talked and he started working. And he's one of my best employees. And to us, this is his best job. So it just, you know, we have a lot. That That's kind of how our crew is. We're, for, your, for your viewers, we're not a big corporate firm. You know, I refer to our company as a band of misfits out to change the world. And we're a small company. We're a group. I mean, managers, my CMO is, you know, the head of the department was on social media for, you know, 20 hours straight answering, answering comments, answering people's questions. Um, we don't defer mine. things off. What's that? <laughs> Including mine. Yeah, exactly. But that's what it takes. Um, the gun safe community regardless of the size of our whole community, it still is a small group. It's, I mean, we all view ourselves as you go to the range and you're shooting with guys, whether you know them or not, it's a small group of guys. And you all work together to maintain that basic range safety when you're shooting. When you go, when, go hunting, it always comes down to a small group of people trying to achieve a goal. And that's kind of how we look at, regardless of the size of the company, we're always going to maintain that we all believe in our cause. We all, we're all on the same path and we're all working together. But uh, we don't make corporate big decisions because there isn't one. You know, I'm the guy that owns the company and I spend very little time looking at a computer. You know, I'm bouncing, I'm, I'm out in the warehouse with a welder, with wood. I make all the prototypes, I make them out of wood and out of metal. I make, you know, I come Franken brackets. I, I make the form that I, the function I want. Then we send it out to somebody to make it actually look good. But that's, I mean, we're very much hands-on, and yeah. it's a, it's a really fun place to work because it's a, we thrive on allowing creativity to flow across all departments. Which makes a lot of sense if you come from outside. Yeah. Will you tell people a little bit about the True Safe too? The uh, or I think that's what yeah. the line is called. So you know, you obviously have the lightweight versions. That's what I've used. Yeah. I'm a mover right now. When I get my my final home, I'm going to invest in something a little more durable. People want to yeah. know, hey, I want to I want to vault this sucker in. I want this thing to stay with the house. What does that look like? The true safe we made, um, I'd been at the time early in our retail, I was kind of hitting the gun safe industry pretty hard and I got a lot of pushback and rightfully so true, truly. I really, I came on a little too strong probably. So we decided to, I kept talking about the safe industry is not really making safes. So we decided to make the true safe. The true safe is made per the original patent of Silas Herring who designed and patented the first real fireproof safe. It's double-walled steel filled with a concrete composite. It's very heavy. I think it's around 1,200 pounds. It's four inches thick. I think it's three inches of concrete between slabs of steel on the door. Um, and it is a true safe. People, now, people are getting getting riled up in the chat that I've got. I've got a live chat now looking at it. They're going like, oh, man. It's, I mean, it holds, again, it's a big safe. It holds eight guns because that's all that fits in a true safe. It's a lot of thickness, a lot of steel, a lot of weight. Now, the reason for the true safe, and it's not the true gun safe. It's the true safe. Mm-hmm. It is a safe that will hold guns. But you buy this because you want a true safe for valuables, for precious metals, for, for, for things that you really want to protect. Now, I'm going to talk about fire rating. The gun safe industry thrives on 90-minute, 60-minute, one-hour, two-hour fire ratings. We don't give any of our products a fire rating. The true safe doesn't have a fire rating. It has a graph showing the performance in a fire test. We tested it, and the fire testing process is your safe goes in an oven, 
keep probes going in the safe. They turn the oven up to 13 or 1400 degrees and you wait. When the temperature probes in the safe break 350 degrees, boom, that's how long your safe will last in a fire as per the test. Our safe went into the oven. We broke 350 at two hours, 20 minutes. Our safe had been sitting in the sun in the back of a truck. We went into the oven. Our safe was 99 degrees when it went in. So it probably is longer. What would I consider a fire rating on that? 30 to 45 minutes max. And the reason I say that is that test is a static test. Mm -hmm. Real fires are dynamic. And the way to look at that is if you're making a pizza in an oven, you got the oven up to 500 degrees or 450, you're going to put your pizza in to cook it. You can put your hand in that oven and hold it in there. I'll bet you could hold it in that oven at 450 degrees for probably three minutes, maybe longer until your hand gets to a heat point where you got to pull it out because it's going to burn. Mm -hmm. Heat transfers very slowly in a static environment. Now take a small jet engine mounted on a bench with a jet exhaust that's 450 degrees coming out at 60 miles an hour. Put your hand in that exhaust stream. It'll burn the skin off your bone in probably less than a second. When you look at a fire in a home, the convective force of that fire has air moving in excess of 60 miles an hour. And when you look at actual, you know, Google up gun safes and fires, yeah, there's a few hero stories out there, but gun safes don't survive fires. The big fires that roared through California, there were articles about none of the gun safes survived. We cooked off a uh, Liberty 90-minute safe last summer out at the Secure Ranch. We built a big burn box and set up a fire. At 18 minutes, this, the 90-minute safe broke 400 degrees. What's more important, though, is you don't want a fire rating with your gun safe. If it's in a fire, you're never going to shoot the guns again. Because here's what happened. We put the fire out, and we're like, wow, you know, 20 minutes. Well, that was really quick. And we're all like, wow, that's really surprising. Well, Stephen, of course, was with us. He had his grill, so he's grilling up sausages. And we sit, took a little break, <laughs> had some lunch, and uh, came back to the safe. The internal temperature had gone up to 720 degrees. So the hot metal transferred, hardened steel breaks down at 380 to 400, annealed steel breaks down at 680 degrees. That's your barrel and your action. The guns in that safe should never be fired. So, you know, that safe does have a fire component to it. It, it, it is quite secure in a fire, but uh, most of our folks, we built it for that purpose only. Our core focus is fast modular access, fast access modular safes, and allowing people to live with gun safes. The average American moves every 6.3 years. The most left behind thing when people move is a hot tub and a gun safe. With our product, they can easily move it. In many cases, they can disassemble it and move it. I've taken mine from Virginia to New Mexico to Arizona and now to Texas. Yep. So mine's move with me in the very yep. short space. A lot of times it does happen. Yep. People who know. I really love that you guys are science driven. I know you got another interview. I just want to thank you for your time. We'll plug the, yep. uh, the socials for the company and uh, the website will be available in our show notes. But uh, I think uh, that gives people a really good insight about what's out there. And, and Steve and I, um, my, my guest next is going to talk about lawful access. So we'll talk about that FBI list ah, a little bit later. But um, excellent. we do really appreciate it, Tom. Thanks for jumping on with me this morning on Last Minute Notice. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the real Steve friend. And he's going to jump on and we're going to talk a little bit about DOJ's policy. We're going to talk about uh, what DOJ has been trying to do, which is to break access to things that are secure, whether they be your gun safe, whether it be your end-to-end -end encryption, whether it be the things that you think that you do, uh, you have that the government cannot access. We're going to talk about all those things. How are you doing, Steve? What's up, buddy? I'm doing good, man. I'm excited for a friendly Friday. 
Very good. I am also excited. I'm going to do our ad reads right now, if you don't mind. If you'll bear with me just a few more moments. It looks like you're ready to like go PT with the uh, Marine Corps right now. I like that shirt. <laughs> Give me two seconds. So we're going to say thanks, first of all, to my buddies over at Gerardo Boyle's house. This is the Suspendables merch. This is the dash Suspendables with an S on the end dot com. You can go there, find our merch store. Guys, if you're looking for any of our gear, this is how you go get it. We'll say another thank you as well to my friends at Catholic Vote. You guys know who they are. You know what they're about. This is Catholic Vote in the fight for faith, family and freedom. Things that you may need. Uh, and the other pieces, you might need to have your uh, firearms secured so the government doesn't come in and take them. But CatholicVote.org, you can go and sign in with the uh, email address there. You'll see the loop. They've got some interesting stuff on there. The VA promoting trans treatments and uh, and abortion. That's lovely. Our government-funded stuff on that. Mayor uh, New York New York Mayor uh, Adams, Eric Adams, is talking about how migration is going to destroy New York City. If you haven't seen that video, I'll make sure I repost it. I sent it to my mother-in-law, who is a New Yorker. And uh, told them this is a self-inflicted wound. Kind of funny. Tommy Tuberville still fighting the uh, the military right now when it comes to giving promotions and trying to hold it up based on abortion funding. A lot of good stuff going on in today's loop, so definitely check them out. And then lastly, our OG sponsor. You guys know them. And uh, Ryan and I are sporting them. I'm going to have to send them to the other suspendables. This is Patriot Coolers. PatriotCoolers.com is where you go to find the Patriot Coolers products, whether it be hard coolers, soft packs, day packs, uh, parts for their coolers. If you have to go and find, they actually sell new lids for their OG products. If you have like some of the old ones, like I do use promo code, Kyle K Y L E 10% off when you buy them, uh, promo code, Kyle K Y L E gets you that 10%, 50 bucks or more. You get free shipping. So check them out. And, uh, Whoa, there we go. There I am. I'm back here now. Let's talk to Steve. Steve, did you ever hear about the going dark initiative when you were working for the bureau? Uh, a little bit, but yeah, I was just kind of focusing in on uh, Indians on reservations, so it wasn't uh, too too center stage for me. Well, this is an interesting little piece here. I've got an article pulled up, and I think uh, Ryan, let me see if I can find what number it is. I think it's going to be um, number three if you have the the topics up there. This is the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. It's an op-ed that was written by uh, Scott Brady the uh, U.S. Attorney for the Western District of PA. And I know when you're on the Indian Reservation, Facebook and Facebook Messenger is kind of like the default thing because nobody has minutes on their cell phone. This is an article written about how Facebook uh, should try to destroy the encryption and how it's really dangerous. Um, and, and people are seeing here the, uh, the, the legal policy for the DOJ. It's an entire section called lawful access. Um, talk a little bit about how maybe the expectation of privacy you can find and, and your interactions you know, doing warrants and stuff with Facebook, if you would. Well, I mean, I think it kind of depends on uh, who you're going after for, for, from Facebook's perspective. Uh, if it's uh, my wife, they probably would just give everything over to the to the FBI. Uh, Liberty but, safe uh, style. <laughs> correct. I mean, they wouldn't even need process. There would be a confidential human source that would just hand it over, probably a former bureau employee. Uh, but when you are uh, communicating, I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg's even talked about that, that those messages are supposed to be encrypted. You're not supposed to be able to be intercepted without a proper legal authority you would need to have. Uh, well, first of all, you'd have a preservation request. You would uh, you would submit to Facebook and say, hey, look, we're looking at this account. Uh, within the next uh, few weeks, I'm going to intend to send you a search warrant or a subpoena. Uh, you need to basically preserve everything you have. Do not allow it to be deleted. And I'm going to time you out right there because I want you to actually explain what that looks like. So most people have never served a preservation letter. They have no idea what this process looks like or the portals and things that exist. Can you break it down step by step for people. I've done it a number of times. I haven't done it nearly as many times as you has. I'm, I'm sure of that. 
Yeah, I mean, so Facebook and all these sites have uh, have built a law enforcement portal. So you would go into it, you know, you would uh, authenticate that you are actually a representative of law enforcement by your email address and your your bona fides. So you would get access to it, get a password and set up an account, essentially, like you are setting up a Facebook account. You would go in and you'd be able to put the unique identification number for like a Facebook account and say, uh, this is the account I'm looking at. This is the time range that I'm looking at it for. Here's the document that you require by your policy to preserve those documents. Or eventually, when it comes time to submit a search warrant or something to that effect, here is the search warrant for this account for this time range. And they're able to look at it. They get a time frame to, to respond to it because it's a legal authority. It's, it's signed by a federal judge. And then they respond back to you in that timely fashion. And you get uh, you know a zip file of the all the contents of postings and messages and pictures and everything that you're able to kind of click through. And it'll be thousands of pages for, especially for some of these people that are very active on their social media account. And you get to look sort of a snapshot of their history of their account. And then the exploit of it, what is that? Like you're, you're going through, you guys have what analysts or something go through and try to do. People always think that there's like AI tools that are crawling across all this stuff. It's, it's usually more like grunt work, right? Yeah, it's total grunt work. And, and I mean, if we're on the reservation, I did it myself. I mean, I would just sit there with a PDF of 6,000 pages and I would just do a term search, be like drugs and then anything that popped up or guns or, you know, a, cer a certain person's name or you would be able to zero in on conversations of, uh, because you would ask people what their Facebook account was. So you could look at correspondences between folks and then and, uh, and try to zero in on it. And then you, you would always be surprised because people assume that uh, it's it's private and they would share things in there that uh, were criminal in nature. And you could use them as evidence uh, to that they've tried to further their, account, uh, their, their crime or evidence that they had even admitted to a crime. You know, I had assaults where people after the fact were saying, yeah, I did it. And because of this reason and basically have them memorializing their confession without having to actually talk to me. And that's that. And then maybe uh, jail phone calls are like your two to, to baby's mama or girlfriend are like the two best sort of tools you can use. Yeah. And, and now since I'm like hardcore against the FBI, um, anybody uh, who gets uh, who gets arrested, uh, just just uh, just take me out here. Uh, we can't listen to your conversations with your attorney unless you're January 6th. Um, right. But don't call your baby mama the second after you have your conversation with your attorney, because you're not going to be able to resist the temptation and say, Hey, I had this conversation with my attorney and this is what we said. That's exactly right. That is exactly what goes on. Those are the, like, you don't have to find the call. Ooh, there's my lighting. You don't have to find the call that, uh, that was to the attorney. You just go find the next one and find out who you just called or mom. Mom is always a good mom. one, right? Calling yeah, mom, mom. Call, calling I that mean, woman in your life that you feel like you have to share all the things you just talked to the attorney about. And you have to listen to some conversations, man. And I mean, look, it's look, I, if I had to listen to my conversations with my wife, I mean, I'm sure it'd be pretty mundane, just people having regular talks. But it seemed like 90 percent of the call was you need to put money on my books so that I can call you. Right. And then call the and, other baby mama or the other <laughs> girlfriend the other and one. do the same exact thing. You're my <laughs> only one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say the, the worst thing I ever saw, though, was the uh, the woman who was using her child support uh, from one guy to put money in the books of another guy in, in jail. I was like, man, I almost understand domestic violence now. Oh my God. Yeah, the, the stories that come out of just listening to jail calls is always it, it's always shocking. I think if people have never been involved in it, they would have no idea. Um, I want to I want to pivot away from the comedy part of it, sort of the, the, the uh, dystopian version of it. 
the uh, the concept of encryption, which I think you were you were uh, in the bureau when they were trying to break down the iPhone in San Bernardino. Is that right? Yep. I think it was just before I got in. Were you at the academy then, or was that uh, were you actually in the field? I was in the field then. Yeah. What do you recall the discussions being like about that? I'm, it was all news media to you, but it was something that you saw from that plus you know water cooler chatter. Yeah, I mean, it was just there's this assumption of like we're the uh, we're the force for good here. So why wouldn't we have this ability that they need to give us this back door because you know it, it's always using the most egregious example. In that case, it was this, this terrorist attack. And it's similar to the way that you look at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting uh, in Parkland, where it was, you know, if we can save just one life, then we need to remove the rights of people. And I remember at the time just even thinking that this was, no, this was a, a violation of people's privacy rights. And, and we, you can't have this tool. This is the ring of power or, one, you know, one of them. And uh, it, it cannot be trusted in the hands of a fallen man. And then the FBI, her, her, contrary to what they would have you believe, um, they're not uh, they're not godly or uh, perfect. And they're definitely, uh, they shouldn't be entitled to have that. Not that they don't think that they aren't. I'm going to read something from the DOJ's website. This is from justice.gov, folks. This is uh, this is what it says. Issue. This is talking about lawful access. This is very specifically lawful access uh, to your encrypted technology, which is where they are most fascinated. So here's what it says. Uh, issue. Law enforcement is increasingly facing challenges due to the phenomenon of, quote unquote, warrant proof encryption. Service providers, device manufacturers, and application developers are deploying products and services with encryption that can only be decrypted by the end user or the customer. Because of warrant-proof encryption, now they don't use the scare quotes again, the government often cannot obtain the electronic evidence or intelligence necessary to investigate and prosecute threats to public safety and national security, even with a warrant or a court order. This provides a quote-unquote lawless space that criminals, terrorists, and other bad actors can exploit for their nefarious ends. And then they do a case spotlight talking about how a guy said that uh, he was involved in child pornography. That's always the great example. It's always going to be criminals that are uh, doing child pornography, terrorists who want to uh, blow you up and kill you, or bad actors who can exploit things. Um, financial crimes is the other one. They like to talk about why crypto is dangerous and why the idea that they can't keep track of all your financial um, transactions. Do you have this sense that I do, that, 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 that federal agents think they have that right to get into everything you have once they have that warrant, like that's that's their business? Yes, without a question. They think that they there should never be a hindrance to anything that they want to do. If they, if they We saw it in the, the video of the Nathan Hughes arrest. I mean, it's just those guys have no awareness of what people's constitutional rights are to either just stand in a certain area in public, uh, you know, or be secure in their, in their personal uh, effects and, and, and privacy. I, I like to take something like this to a, an absurd length to make sure that we're intellectually consistent. Okay. So you know, you're a fan of spy novels and, and stories that you know you have like the Mission Impossible, like this message will self destruct. Right? I'm, I'm a I'm a Robert Ludlum guy. Just saying, okay. like, I go back to the right. 70s and read those. But go ahead, keep going. <laughs> so, but I mean, by this logic, uh, you and I shouldn't have access to fire because if you sent me a letter and I burned it that deprives the government of the ability to read that letter if they ever want to go and get a search warrant for one thing or another. That, that's the same, that's intellectually, that's the same argument here. That's true. And then let's take it to a, a step further, which is to say that because that technology exists, they are presupposing that you and I will have communications that they will need to access at some point, that, that it is a common enough feature that most people will have to be engaged in that. 
Uh, I mean, that or they're just deprived of that opportunity to try to pin something on you. And like we know that the uh, the FBI and federal law enforcement is always looking for opportunities to expand. They're they're not doing their job if they're not expanding. Well, we just actually talked about that with George Hill, uh, I think, on Wednesday. That was the discussion. It's like if government is not moving to the point of being too large, then it is not being government. Um, let's let's talk about that. I think it's called the fallacy of the converse. I'm going to have to recall my logical fallacies here, which I'll have to look up in a minute. Maybe maybe Ryan will pull it up and see if that's correct. But essentially, they're saying because encryption can be used by, let's say, child pornographers, people who use encryption are child pornographers or likely to be. And that's that's what the was same. I looking up, Kyle? We're looking for the fallacy of the converse. I think that's what it's called. C O N V E R S E. So. Um, one of the things it's that I would effective, it's, it's an effective argument. It's I mean, a scare it, tool for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, think of it, you know, we're coming up into an election season and, you know, it's like, uh, David Duke supports this candidate. So you shouldn't vote for that candidate. Right. Because you don't want to support people supporters. that the Klan supports, do you? Correct. Correct. And so I actually had the FBI Agents Association president use that on me in the same way, affirming the, the consequence. I think that might be slightly different. A fallacy of the converse. Uh, if the lamp were broken, the room would be dark. If the room is dark, the lamp must be broken. Yeah, that that's exactly it. So I actually do recall it. Affirming the consequence. Uh it's it's a false, it's a false um propositional logic. It's a failure of using that statement because you're basically confirming that the 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 converse of it, which is to flip the uh, part A and the part B. If the B, you know, if A, then B, if B, then also A. That's not always the case. Um, so the thing that's really interesting is the, this FBI president, and I can't remember his name right now. It was the guy after Tom O'Connor, and I think his name is Brian something or other. He was in either Memphis or or uh, Nashville. And he called me up because I dropped out of the Agents Association because they were going and saying that the FBI needed a backdoor tool to all end-to-end -end encrypted apps. And they were you know, affirming that as a position that they were lobbying Congress about, which I found to be atrocious. And he said, obviously, you want uh, child pornographers and terrorists to get away with it then. You've never had a, a terrorist get away with something because you couldn't get into their phone. And I was like, no, I just think that you're the federal government and you should have to work harder. I'm sorry that your job is harder and you have to obey the Constitution, which very specifically says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And the idea that you would have that technology is an unreasonable search capability that you would be able to abuse it. I don't want you to do that. And that's always my argument. I think you and I share this citizens first. Um, you know, sort of God fearing uh, and, and family members first, husband and father first, citizen second, I guess. And then the third is whatever that job is, whether it's a police officer or an FBI agent or otherwise. And if you want to live in a world where FBI agents that are not you, who don't have the same morals as you, who seem okay with this, what we're going to show this video in a second, if those people are going to have access to be able to cracking end to end encryption simply because it exists and it's a lawless space, that scares the hell out of me. Like on every level, I don't, I don't think FBI agents should have access to that. Anyway, this is this is Snowden. This is this is what Prism presented and, and he exposed at the time. And I mean, just because technology evolves, uh, it's just going to be the same story over and over again. And I don't know if it was connected to Prism or if it was connected to San Bernardino. It's sort of in my memory, it's like all around the same time frame. And there was a debate about like this micro data that uh, whether or not they should, they could have access to it. And I remember debating it with a counterterrorism agent. And I said, you shouldn't have it. And I know Rand Paul was banging the lectern that, you know, that this is, you should not be entitled to that. And that's no surprise from him. Of course. And the CT agent was like, you know that you're going to put Americans at greater risk. And I just remember thinking like, there's risks to freedom. That's implied. You, you, you can, if you have total security, then you have a totalitarian state. And that's not very safe to me either. 
And that leads to this whole thing. This is why we brought on uh, Tom earlier and talked about Secure It, because I, I, I really did actually incidentally uncover the fact that they don't have access to my safe um, and they can't generate a set of keys. And my safe is not like the high end version of it. It's, it's what they call the agile safe. They have an agile. They have an answer. That's the next step up. It's heavier and has more fireproof ratings. Mine has no fireproof rating at all. It's a it's just a, you know, a metal box that that keeps all my guns in it. Oh, because global warming is going to get your guns now, man. They're working on it. Yeah. The nice thing is, is there's ventilation in the back of it. There's actually holes in the back that back up. I've got a little standoff between the wall and my and my safe. So I can actually have airflow in there, which is really, really good for your guns. Static, humid air is one of the worst things you can have. So people who have ever tried to do gun storage understand how this works. In Florida, that's a big deal for you if you had enough that you you wanted to stack a box up with, you know, like eight or 10 guns. But anyway, long and short of it is the idea that they would have access to it is really scary because when you have access, then you tend to abuse it. As I think we've seen with things like 702, they have access, it gets abused in like millions of times, literally millions of times a year. It's sort of yeah. shocking that that's the case, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, millions of searches with FISA 702. I mean, that's it's... It's unbelievable that you, they cannot, they're incapable of, of handling any sort of power and any sort of uh, justification. They say, well, we've taken measures to improve. I'm like, improve? So so you just failed a little bit less? We, we violate the law less frequently than we used to violate the law, which was more frequently. Correct. Yeah. I mean, now it's, it's hundreds of thousands instead of millions. It, um, I mean, it's like the argument about the, the government debt. I mean, it's like, hey, look, we've reduced the deficit. It's like, so we're, we're out overspending our income by slightly less. That's right. Way we're still we're still going to be in the red, but we're not going to be in the red as much. Aren't you proud of us? I actually had that experience running a business. I took a business that was losing $100,000 a month. And the second month we lost $30,000, which was all part of the plan as they did the takeover. But it wasn't like a moment to celebrate. Like we only lost 30 grand. You're like, oh no, we lost 30 grand. We are still in it. And then- Do the, you ensure your reelection if you're in Congress with that one? I know it. It's so crazy, right? But then of course, the, by the third <laughs> month, which was where this is way faster than a lot of takeovers- we lost, um, I think we broke even. We were down like five bucks. And then uh, we turned our, turned our first profit after the fourth month. Now for a restaurant takeover, that's pretty unusual. Um, and we had a lot of corruption to deal with and stuff. But but you know, this, is, this would be a huge victory. This would be like a, a mind-numbing governmental victory to actually go from the red to the black. And, and like, like I say, they're cheering the lowest bar. The bar is that we failed less. And people are sort of like, yay. <laughs> we have this like sort of sad clap for it. It's very disappointing to me. I want to do this video before we run uh, too much out of time, and we'll maybe go over a little bit today. But Ryan, we got a video queued up, uh, number one, if you would. I want to do about the first two minutes of it. Folks, this is colorful language. If you haven't heard this before, this is the arrest of Nathan Hughes. This was discussed a little bit earlier. This is why the Liberty Hill safe thing came into the focus. This is a new angle that the Hodge twins posted. Uh, this is obviously a very combative photographer, uh, citizen journalist type guy who decided to get this on record. And he is not having any of the FBI's BS and uh, I kind of, kind of on the side of the guy. I've worked with the, I've been on both sides of this now. I think, and these agents, we're gonna, we're gonna troubleshoot what their problems are. We're gonna probably go a little long on this, but uh, bear with me. And if you need to turn it down, or if you're at work, this, there's gonna be a little bit of colorful language. So uh, go ahead and send that whenever you're ready, Ryan. Anywhere close to me, sir. Please step. Don't back get here. anywhere step close back. to me. Please, I, I, please step I'm, back. I'm not doing anything wrong. I know you're not. Get away wrong, from me. Please, Don't get your okay. fucking hands please off step me. Back. Get your hands off me. Get your hands off me. Sir, stop right there. It doesn't matter. No, you, no, you don't I'm need not to doing anything right. Don't, get your we, fucking hands you off me. You don't need to walk get into where we're arresting somebody right now. Do you it doesn't matter. Me? Get your fucking hands off me. Don't touch me. Yo, yo, come on, man. We're Sit good. back here with me, man. Come on. Notice that they don't touch the black guy who walks right here. through the scene. I got him, boss. He good. He good. Come on. It's we good. so good. 
That's so good. Please stop walking. Please stop walking forward. I got him. I got him. I got him. I got him. Okay, let's do a little pause right there if you would, Ryan. We're going to keep coming. We're going to go right back to that same spot. Okay, so what are you seeing right there, Steve? You've been on SWAT. You know what that is. Those guys are SWAT guys for the most part. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, it might be a squad arrest, and it makes sense. It's, it's a CT squad because a lot of CT guys are on SWAT because you don't have to do that much. They don't have to do a lot of work. How do how do you know that they're SWAT? I'm, I know how to, but let's let's break it out for the guests. I mean, or well, the, the one uh, guy has a SWAT hat on, but uh, they have the uh, this long M4 with the, uh, this, the uh, well, it's got the uh, OD green. Uh, right, M4. so they've got green rifles. So these are yeah. heads-ups. Like, normally black rifles are issued. The green anodized rifles are coming out. There's their SWAT only. They yep. have a sexy color scheme. Um, body, body armor, armor change. Okay. Body armor is is, is multicam. So uh, whoever is a son developed the, the multicam and, and then had a dad who was a general or something, I, that's billions of dollars because now everybody wears multicam. Right. Um, well, here's the thing. Those are the cry JPCs, the uh, the jump plate carriers that are the uh, the high speed stuff. Because what does multicam mean? Multicam is the the camouflage pattern. So your standard FBI is going to be that OD okay. green. It's that that solid green, like you see a lot of sheriff's departments wear. That's what the FBI originally had. And then they went into those cry JPCs because everybody in the FBI needs a jumpable plate carrier. Did you know that they were supposed to be, they're specifically made for jumping? No, I didn't know. <laughs> they're, they're, they, did you ever call them a JPC? No, just plates, man. Okay. So the guys that are in the, the, um, the Bureau's bigger offices all call them the JPC, which is what they are. Because they're jumpable plate carriers, which is actually a modular difference than than the ones that, that the regular agents get issued, which are not jumpable. There's certain features on it that you have to have. So these guys have the the the, the uh, cry version. Um, you see some other guys out there that we know are new guys. What do we know about the new guys, Steve? Uh, they're going to have very clean body armor. It looks very new because I know in my eight years, um, I did not get new body armor, even though I was told it was going to be renewed every five years. Right, exactly. So those guys are less than, uh, they're a couple years in. I think that body armor change happened in 2020 or 2021. Yep. And so those yep. guys have two, three years in on that body armor. They may have been an executive or a friend of somebody. They got like the new deal. Maybe they're a firearms instructor. They went back to Quantico for some sort of training and they got some body armor issued to them, or at least the, the carrier. Yep. I mean, some. Well, I think I remember I seen one of the guys had uh, had a pry bar. And that's definitely a SWAT thing. Yep. They uh, they have the blowout uh, pouch on their on their duty belt, uh, and that's again like that's a SWAT thing too. Like most agents don't have that. Except Kyle Serafin, who you wouldn't be surprised to find out. I mean, yes, so, because you are in better gear than the SWAT team, and we're like, course. because I'm a professional and uh, I buy it myself. That being said, I would never wear that stuff on an arrest. I might have a gun belt on and a T-shirt or something, and and it would be you and me going up and talking. Can we, to yeah, them. can we dig into that? Let's do it, please. Let's <laughs> okay. do it. Let's talk right, about so this, tactics. So this alleged crime, I mean, he's he's been charged with. Uh, occurred almost three years ago. Criminal complaint only. I'm going to hit the uh, the high points on it just so people understand what we're talking about. This is from a criminal complaint. This is not an indictment. This is a criminal complaint with an arrest warrant. And the fact pattern specifically says that uh, what he was involved in is that he threw an elbow in the direction of a police officer's riot shield. It says that he was in the tunnel, uh, that he was looking, he was in the tunnel when the rioters broke through to the mouth of the tunnel at 242. The rioters broke the glass. Not him, by the way, just rioters. They engaged in um, synchronized pushing and shoving against police officers. Not him specifically, but people around him. And then they said they identified him as an individual who pushed against police and aided other rioters in fighting. He didn't fight necessarily. He aided in fighting. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the word aiding in fighting is, uh, but he was physically in a place and they show that a white male was physically present who appeared to be him. 
and they were able to determine who he was based on gloves and the 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 um, notches in his ears, which we can identify, even though he had a mask on and a face covering. And he also yelled, come on, come on, come on in the direction of the tunnel, which is a capital crime to say things like that, apparently. And then, uh, like I said, he threw an elbow in the direction of you can see him go, like basically in the mouth of the tunnel. So he's in this sort of place that he's not supposed to be. And that uh, that was enough for them to say. And his 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 mask fell down briefly. Doesn't mean he wasn't like a dude who was fighting cops. Doesn't mean that there might not be an assault charge. It looks like they can't prove it, though, at least so far. And unless that he were to self-incriminate, that'd be really difficult. So this is the guy that we're dealing with. A guy who <laughs> two years ago got into a rumble in the tunnel. Uh, two and a half years ago, and we had to get a complaint, too. We, we couldn't go through the regular grand jury process. We Talk have to that. actually get a judicial complaint to uh, to get it quickly because there's an exigency here. Like, there could be violence imminent. We have to, like, act now and send an entire squad to arrest this guy who's obviously committed no crime since this happened. And he was this was uh, this was sworn out on the 18th of August, by the way. So there's a two week lag between the swearing out of the exigent warrant and the service of it, because it was served this week. Okay, so again, wh what was the exigency that they had to get a complaint here? Why couldn't they go through the regular grand jury process that- Because we, then they would have had to get a summons for him. <laughs> Correct, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't go out there with their cool guy, uh, you know, SWAT gear, slick. Uh, they didn't wear the cries, so uh, the, the, the women won't swoon quite as much. But uh, I think if, if this was a actual case that you and I had, that we were gonna go execute a lawful arrest warrant, <laughs> think that uh, two people would be suitable. Um, you would say, hey, guy, why don't you meet me at this strip mall uh, or somewhere else? And uh, you can you can surrender to us there. And then we can pick you up and drive away. We won't have to stand there with some sort of like rolling perimeter that a citizen journalist can just penetrate through and then create a, a whole scene there uh, because it just takes them logistically because there's 20 people to leave. It takes them a long time. And their, their, their whole issue, too, was they're trying to get his vehicle to somebody so that somebody could take control of his vehicle. Well, if you call the guy ahead of time, then he's going to make arrangements for somebody to take his vehicle or to drop him off. You don't encounter that, that logistical problem, but they were, they had to have their, their FD 888, their ops plan, I'm sure was all drawn up that they were going to take this guy down outside of like some sort of rundown outlet where there was no, no nobody parked. So I don't know what the plan was here, but it, it certainly was not contrived by anybody with a, a functioning prefrontal cortex. So here's the here's the major issues I see with this particular operation. They've got a moving perimeter, which means we have people that don't know their legal authorities to hold a line and what that line should be. And they don't have enough experience doing it to make that happen. They've got a dozen guys or a half dozen guys and plus whoever else is there. We've got six vehicles at least that are meandering around with their backs to potential threats, if that's what they're going to call it. They have suppressed M4s. They don't have a hands team, right? Um, and we'll dig into what a hands team is later. But they don't have somebody that's dedicated to having no rifle. Like, even the guy who's doing the search has a freaking rifle slung. Have you seen that? Like, in the background and he's of he's doing video. a terrible search. It's <laughs> the worst you could do. Now, the fact is, is he's got really light clothing. But as you're taught at the academy, people can hide all kinds of wild stuff in wild they places. They can secrete it. They can so, secrete it. FBI so, term. So either... Uh, I thought it was secret it. <laughs> it makes more sense to me. Secrete it sounds like it's coming out of their skin. The, the, the most important thing is this. Either you search everyone like they might have a weapon and you're going to be serious about it, or you don't search everyone like a weapon, but then you have this problem. It's like, well, why wasn't he searched that way? And by the way, my friends have done bad searches or have been on the scene of bad searches. And uh, they actually had a guy who they found a grenade on his body 
And then they left him and they and they were like, oh, it's a grenade. So they got really excited and they found the grenade. And he sent me a, a text message, probably our first year in the uh, in the FBI. And he said, pro tip, when you find a grenade on your subject, keep searching until you find his hidden gun. Because if there's a grenade, there's probably a gun. The guy went into jail, locked up with uh, his hands behind his back and a revolver down his pants up in the front. And he was freaking out, as you can imagine. So stuff like this, you know, either you search people like you're serious or you don't. Uh, you've got a little bit of a crowd here, but this could have been a really quick meet. You and me go up. We tell them, look, we've got a warrant for your arrest. We're going to pick you up and you can surrender and that'd be great. And we'll do it with no fanfare and you can make arrangements or you can run and the United States Marshal Service will run you down and they do that for a living. And then you got to deal with whatever that looks like and they'll do a dynamic entry into your hotel room. So we would just let's get this squared away and we'll get you home by the end of the dinner after we get you booked in an initial. Let's make it easy on everybody. And you can do that. And most people are amenable to that when they've abided by the law their whole life. Correct. And, and they're, they're probably scooping this guy up too late to uh, actually get him to the magistrate yeah, that day. The, the sun is high in the sky at that point there. Yeah. So, so daylight they're the going to ensure no matter what, he's spending at least one night in lockup. That's That all is true too. Now you've got new guys that are out there with a moving security. They don't know what their, their constitutional liberty uh, line is. They don't know that they can't uh, stop this guy's First Amendment ability to, to walk up and film. And... Their, their argument is, why don't you be cool? Can we talk about the loss of uh, the the prestige of the FBI and why that has created this dangerous problem, I think, for, for arrests like this? Yeah, I'm, I'm, look, if, yes, he has the right to, to, you know, to walk around. He's got the free access to movement, but you just need to be respectful to, to the person. If you have the reputation that kind of supersedes you, I think most people are willing to honor that. And you say, hey, I, I know you can walk through here, uh, but I would really appreciate it if you stood there. We'll make sure that you can get access and you can film properly. We're not trying to impede your, on your rights. Uh, and I think most people, if they respected the FBI, would say, okay, that's fine with me. But clearly this guy doesn't have that. No, I mean, he's he's like, I'm trying to be cool with you. And the other guy was like, this is a crime I saw it on CSI, but it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. work here. It's not a crime scene. So you can see the foolishness that's going on. Uh, Jigsaw in the chat just said they should have wrapped in from a uh, from a helicopter. The uh, the helo rappel would get you a definite promotion if you could have sold that to this to this takedown. Yeah, yeah. you just need the dog kill team sent in ahead of time, that, right? That's to, to take him and put him on the ground, and then yeah, and then you got options, or maybe a drone, a drone rolling in that's with an offensive uh, explosive device. Mm -hmm. So we're we're being silly about this, but the, the argument is when you have these civilians, and I've I've held perimeter for SWAT um, many times. I've held perimeter for other engagements. It looks very simple. You go up to them and you have a, a very common idea. It's like, look, you have every right to film here. I'm not going to impede on your ability to do that. For your safety and for the safety of those inside, please stand behind this line because I don't want you to catch a stray round if something breaks bad, and I don't want you to do this. If you want to get access closer, we'll work on that in just a minute. Let them get this guy secure for his safety as well. I don't want him to get hurt, and then I will bring you in. If you want to talk to him afterwards, you can talk to him. I don't care. We're going to take yeah. him away. I'll roll the window down. You can have a conversation, especially if you're trying to secure the vehicle or help us out. Okay? Is that cool? Is that amenable? And if you have that, what's he being arrested for? Look, this is January 6th related. Um, I can't say much more about it. That's up to him. But if you guys want to have that conversation in a second, he can tell you all about it. And then we're going to get out of here. Another another option that clearly they didn't think out when they were drafting their FD-888 was, why don't you have a local law enforcement there? So if That's it is a one. disruptive citizen... You, they can roll up on them and say, hey, look, you're committing a state fraction right now by being disorderly or you're committing some sort of city ordinance violation. They can actually jam him up. Right. It's, at a, least it's a right of way violation because you're standing in the middle of an active roadway or parking lot or whatever the thing is. The cop knows that code because they deal with it when they need to. The FBI doesn't have that that authority. No, I mean, that's he, he's, he's saying this is a crime scene because <laughs> he just doesn't know. <laughs> no, that's a SWAT guy, man. It's It's a hammer looking for a nail. That's it.
Yeah, it's really troubling for me to see this kind of stuff. There's a more of it, too. They turn their back on them on a regular basis. So either you have a threat and you have a perimeter or you don't. And if you're not going to be able to acknowledge this, the lackadaisical attitude walking around, I'll give you the top couple. I've had about 150 or 200,000 views on Twitter of my comments on this, which is that the FBI are not police. And the questions have come up. Why are they dressed the way they are? Why is there a mixed bag of, of armor? I think we've covered the armor piece, at least, that different, you know, Different tenure in the bureau and different teams will give you different access. But why are they wearing blue jeans and stuff like that? Is this a Merc team? You know, are they a bunch of PMCs, private military contractors? Can you address the uh, uniform thing? I mean, it's just just down, man. It's it's an arrest operation. Uh, the FBI doesn't have a uniform unless it's a SWAT team. So everybody's just kind of throws on something that's going to be a pres- taking something can move around in. I mean, and they're they're definitely not upholding uh, the Steve Gray mindset of you have to wear a suit all the time anymore. I think that they've just you devolved into a more casual and blue jeans are going to get a suffice here. As long as I have my, uh, my badge on, uh, then that, that should be enough. And, uh, you know, so it does, it, it sort of has that like inconsistent look, but again, FBI is not police. They, there's not a uniform, uh, that they're expected to wear. There is a cool guy aspect to it. And I've done surveillance where we've done surveillance to arrest. That is the way I would do an arrest if I was doing that. However, this is a planned operation where they may have two people in plain clothes, like looking like you and me sitting and watching. And you could literally send two guys in in suits. They could drive up. Once you've ID'd the subject, you got a backup team that is low vis that could throw on plates if they needed. But you could have two guys walk up in suits. And the fun thing is everybody who's come out of Quantico, especially those guys with that new armor, they have the new ultra low visibility armor, which is a pistol round stopping super thin T-shirt under. I've worn it under a T-shirt, by the way. And nobody's seen it. And I would do that for source meets if it was necessary or if I was going to a bad neighborhood and I was going to get out and be on foot. It's great. And they could have easily walked in with body armor on wearing a suit if they were so concerned and still had that conversation with a guy. But once you've seen what that guy is capable of, he's obviously not concealing a rifle in those clothes. I mean, he's wearing a T-shirt yeah, I mean, and board you would, if You would expect to be doing some amount of surveillance before you go to arrest him. I mean, obviously they knew he was going to be in that location at that time. They had some advanced information so if you're watching him, you see he doesn't have a you know an AK slung to his back. Like, why are you rolling up on him with you know eight guys with slung M4s? It it's just it's not a awareness of the optics of the situation because the FBI is clearly not concerned about what uh, the the public thinks of it. And there's this is again the process is the punishment, and and we're good with it. Maybe go into the mindset you think of the of the actual individuals that are involved there. We know the FBI's general does not care. They think that they're the good guys, so they're serving truth, justice in the American way by running a bunch of dudes with uh, suppressed M4s. Everybody has to have one, including the chick that was there, who I've seen very, very few women in the FBI who could handle an M4 in a way that made me comfortable with them having it. Just straight up, and, and that's also true for most guys, but um, women as the one subset, and then like guys who didn't grow up around rifles is the other subset, which is... 80% of the Bureau, I would say. They just, they're bad news with a rifle. They're scary. They don't know how to secure it. The guys who use it every day, like me, which is unusual, or guys who are on SWAT are the only ones that seem comfortable with it. And they don't care. So so what are the individuals that are on that scene thinking about, you think, as they're getting questions and, and they're saying, hey, what's your badge number? Like you're getting that question. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they're completely overwhelmed by that that situation, which is, again, like it's not trained that way because if you're a SWAT guy, you're just going doing close quarter battle drills in an empty house and then practicing your room clearing techniques. And very seldom do you have like a role player who gets spun up and starts screaming at you and isn't like pulling out, uh, you know, a SIM gun that you have to just tap two times in the chest and then they go down. Uh, this is Nobody's ever thought out real world scenarios like what if you have an unruly citizen who's standing by that that seems like a very higher likelihood as opposed to like 
you uh, while training on SWAT, you got a hostage rescue call out, and you have to go to this, you know, the, this active shooter situation, which is going to be very remote. It's more likely nowadays, especially, that you're going to have somebody with a cell phone who's kind of being a jerk. How are you going to address that? What are their rights, and how are you going to mitigate that? And those guys were, they they would rather have been engaged with a shooter than dealing with that guy. For sure, a hundred percent. Yeah, because that was something that they're not capable of doing. Look, I used to work surveillance on the, on the street. So you're out there every single day. You're idling in a car when it's a thousand degrees outside. You have your air conditioning running. You know, you don't want to do that. That's no fun to sit and sweat it out. Although I've done that too. And I froze it out too. And it sucks. So mostly you're running an engine and people tend to notice that on very, very small occasions. But when they do, you have an interaction with a, with a concerned citizen and they have every right to know what the heck you are doing. They have every right to at least bother you about why you're in their neighborhood. And I was always told you can never tell them who you are, what you're doing under any circumstances. And the fact of the matter is, if you pulled that shit in front of my house, and I apologize for swearing, but there's no other way to say it. If you pulled out and were like idling outside of my house, watching a house down the street, and I walked out to you, number one, I would be armed. Number two, I don't know what you're doing there, but you're either law enforcement or a scumbag, and you better help me understand right away which one you are. And so, you know, I would always mix at least a big grain of the truth with my story. I may not be telling you exactly why I'm there, but I'm going to at least let you know that I'm part of Team Good Guy. I don't have to flash a badge. I have to be articulate. I have to give you an, a message. One of my favorite ones is I would tell people I'm with the postal inspector and we've had a lot of um, checks that have been stolen and washed out of your neighborhood and we are watching mailboxes. So look, I really appreciate it if you don't kind of dime us out. We're going to be here for the next week or so. We're going to be in and out. You'll see different cars and stuff, but we're just trying to make sure that your neighbors are not getting financially scammed. You have some retirees in your neighborhood that we're looking out for. And that is plenty. I don't need to tell you that I'm looking for a member of the Asian boys gang who is wanted for homicide. That's not my job. I don't have to do that. But I will tell you that at least I'm part of a team doing something that is plausible that is going to allay your fears because you pay my salary. And these people don't seem to realize that the people that are asking questions, it is their job to defend the uh, civil liberties of that guy with the camera who's being a kind of a dick at the same time as they are trying to enact this arrest warrant, which is mandated by the judge that they specifically asked it so they could get an arrest warrant which we, you know, we, I think we've covered that well, but they, they have a duty to the guy with the phone. That is part of their duty. And it's lost. Yeah. It's lost. I mean, on it is. I mean, they, they, it's definitely an us versus them mentality that has now crept its way into the vast majority, I think of the agents. And it's, it's disappointing. Uh, I, I mean, I never, I, I didn't like cops when they had that mentality. I, I never looked at my job being that way. And that was always my objection, uh, you know, I hated doing traffic as a cop. And one of the reasons was, was I thought it led you to a mentality where you were looking for regular people that were just going to work or driving their kids to school and you were targeting them because you got to write a ticket because you're hungry for write a ticket. And that, that sort of mentality then would creep into the, the other sort of work that you were doing on a regular basis. And I think that because they're now on the hunt and they're looking for targets of opportunity, be it January 6th or anything else, uh, that that has crept into the regular agent population, and it's very disturbing. I want to um, just put ourselves in the mindset of these guys. Like I said, we've been on these operations. I've been on some that were much sloppier than others. I've been on some that were buttoned up and really, really tight. My my favorite op we did, we arrested a convicted murderer who we had. This is a wild one. We pulled a guy into custody. By the way, we used to have this joke, always look for the, yellow, uh, the orange Harley. We had this guy under surveillance for a couple weeks, and he was a convicted murderer, second-degree murderer. He was working for the city of D.C. at DCRA. People can look this up, but it's one of their uh, cons Consumer Regulation Association or something like that. So he worked every day in a shirt and a tie, um, 
lived in Maryland, like they all did at the time. And he had like a Mercedes and something else. And we were surveilling the house and we're watching for that. And we actually choked back far enough away that we were not on the house where you could see the, the driveway. So we were only looking for those two vehicles. And the subject, like I said, convicted of murder. Um, he was a drug dealer. He was moving fentanyl around. The fentanyl that he sold was used and actually ended up killing another young like college girl in Virginia. So now they had this uh, this Rico case that was going on and they were going to bring him down and they were looking for the supplier of the chain, who was another murderer, by the way, who had gotten out on first degree murder charges after serving like 30 years. And so he was also living in D.C. and he was selling it to his other buddy who he probably met in prison. So these two black guys, like one of them's kind of older, one of them's kind of younger and well-dressed or whatever. And he was a nice enough guy when we dealt with him. He was terrified. And his, his biggest fear was that we were going to tell his wife that he was involved in selling drugs that ended up killing somebody. She was going to find out. But the joke was... You always look for the uh, for the for the orange Harley because we're looking for this Mercedes and this SUV, whatever the heck it was. And the guy comes riding out on this orange Harley, and nobody is ready for it because we didn't know we had a Harley. We'd never seen it before. But one day, the day the day we decided to arrest him, he comes in riding in on a Harley. So we see him go by, and we're like, "I think that was our guy. I, I think he's on a motorcycle. Does he own a motorcycle? Nobody knows." So we start you know running after him. We end up running him down. We catch him at work. We arrest him. We flip him right then and there, and we decide to go in and do a um, kind of a controlled meet with his supplier and we're going to bring that guy into custody. And so this is on the fly, like on a napkin style uh, arrest plan. This is the way that real police do operations. They're in the field. They flip a guy in real time. And if you have an investigative team, you go out and do it. So my team was involved in bringing down the main subject and the two guys met up and he was scared. You know, he was scared out of his mind to go and meet up with his buddy and he gets him on, on tape and, or he gets him to admit to whatever was going on. And then we go into rolling both up again. Now, one of the guys is going to be in custody because he already knows he's been arrested and we are basically letting him on with a little bit of leash. And the other guy is going to have his first interaction with the Bureau. We had two man arrest teams on each of them. Both of them had been, had done time for murder. Okay. One had been searched. One was in the clear. We had no idea. The most dangerous weapon he had was his Baskin Robbins ice cream cone, which he dropped. I will never see uh, a, like a, a green and pink ice cream cone on the ground again and not think about this a moment because the guy ran and then we, we pinned him against a brick wall. One person in front, one person at the side, L-shape, grabbed him, searched him real quickly. That was it. No rifles needed to be involved. It was handguns only. It was exactly like you saw there. It was fast. And we had these guys off the scene in like three minutes or less. We did a search and then we put them in the car and we rolled. And that's it. And so it's like you can do stuff like that and be quick or you can be a mess. But here's the thing I want you to think about. What was that conversation at Denny's like or that lunch at Chili's after those guys left the scene with that gal and they sit down and they're all around the table high-fiving? What were they talking about on that scene? Oh, man. They they were very gregarious, first of all. There was a lot of smoking and joking uh, because they saved America, right, from this guy who threw an elbow in the direction of a shield or something. That's right. Uh, and I think that they probably were just MFing this, this guy and not actually using it as a teachable moment for, hey – what if we encounter this again? I, I highly doubt that they had a serious conversation about that because that's the riffraff that we're, we're, that's the other side. And maybe, maybe we need to find out who that is because uh, he seems kind of sympathetic to this other subject that we've just arrested. And, uh, and, and we can uh, develop a, a case on him. I also can imagine how the guys who, who were engaged with the photographer tough talked after they were done. <laughs> don't you think oh yeah so especially the, like, oh the, man uh, do you see that guy like i was telling him to get back and then I, you know now they were the hero of their own story when they retold uh, it yeah well when he so the uh the guy wearing the swat hat he's like hey what's your badge number he's like i don't have to tell you anything did you I see his neck twitch by the way from the nerves <laughs> you know, am i the only <laughs> yeah. one who saw that yes his he heart was... jumped into his throat when that happened and that was the yeah. only thing he could come out with 
Yeah, that, that, that was my one regret having watched that. I was like, I wish he knew to ask them for their credentials. Right, which they wouldn't have given either, probably. No, no, they're not required. Because it's a crime scene. It's a crime scene. We can't, we can't do that. Uh, you know, and but you know, I don't have to tell you anything. I'm sure when he retold it, it was like he put that guy in his place. The guy that dude had was to like, leave. "Give me your badge number," and I was like, "Go screw yourself!" Like, I don't have to give you a oh, badge yeah. number. I'm an FBI agent. Like, the, the <laughs> tape is out there, bro. You don't look good, and you and you look nervous. And then his buddy couldn't think of anything to say either, and so he, the guy who had nothing but but words for the photographer. Right. Who had nothing but like, you know, tough talk. Suddenly he doesn't have anything to say to him because they're asking for a badge number because FBI agents don't know how to deal with that because they're not cops. Yeah. And how about like, take your hands off me. And he, he kept saying that over and over again, like they were touching him. Right. They had no right to touch him. And if I we mean, had a serious uh, justice department, we would have a color of law investigation that would go into that. And and we can't advocate for that because Merrick Garland is in charge and that's not going to happen. But the Civil Rights Division should be saying, well, were they actually doing something? Were they engaging with a citizen in a way that was a violation of his civil liberties? And I would argue that there's at least an investigation that would be worth having. If you can investigate me for having a conversation that was polite with a police officer, you could sure as hell wonder out why this guy is saying don't touch me. Yeah. What yeah, authority did they have to lay hands on him? None. None whatsoever. I mean, and, and again, we're back to like the, the no respect for the FBI that he clearly has uh, because he, this whole thing would have been avoidable if they, if they had just done what you said and, and and they there had been like a mutual give and take. Like, I will guarantee that you're going to get anything that you want and then extra if you will just afford me some latitude right now because we have to make sure everything's good here. I don't and we could explain it in any way we could like you're, you'll be safe. We'll be safe. There's not going to be a, a whole scene here. And I would think most people who are reasonably minded would have respected that in a, in a time when the FBI was worth respecting. I think you're correct. And like I say, I've, I've had those conversations. I've had them in the hood. I've had them in really, really bad neighborhoods in, in West Baltimore and Southeast DC and, and uh, DC Northwest in the rougher parts of it as well, where there's a lot of looky-loos. There's a lot of people that want to come in and take a, take an eyeball. What's going on? There's an FBI team here. There's a bear cat in the street. It's blocking our access to work. What's going on? I've done crowd control and I've done uh, traffic control and move people along because I understand that just because the FBI decided to park in somebody's driveway or their, uh, their front lawn today doesn't mean you don't have to get to work. And I can create a problem or I can create a solution. And it's like, okay, I need three cars. Like, go, 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 go. All right, stop for a second here. They're bringing somebody out. Okay, go ahead. Let's go. Like, be smart about it and also engage with people. Say, look, here's what's going on. Here's the threat to you. This is the reason why. I used to always call it like the sales job. The sales is. job is what's in it for me. Why are you, why, why should I listen to what you say? And the answer is, I don't want you to get shot. And I don't want one of these local police officers here, which we brought along because we're smarter than, than that arrest crew. I don't want one of these cops to arrest you for some minor infraction. So work with me here real quick. And then I'm going to, and then, and if they have a problem with you, I'm going to be like, no, 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 I told him he could be there. I'm going to have your back too. Make law, an enforcement, law enforcement is sales. It's not military. That's right. It, you're selling jail for the most part to people. It's the worst product in the world. You're dealing with customers who are having the worst day they've ever had in their life. But you have to have the people skills and the reason and rationality to to deal and cope and be nimble enough intellectually to 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 handle the situation. And you cannot ever, under any circumstance, there's 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 some hard and fast rules. Um, you don't ever make a promise to a victim that you're going to get something done because yep. you can never do that. Right. Um, and you never say because I said so and point to your badge, which is. I think what most of those guys were kind of leaning on there and they were, they were sort of nibbling around the edge. didn't want to say it, but essentially that's what they, they were. They right. Were I'm an FBI agent. And who are you? Correct. That is the worst sales job. That's called the argument to authority. 
and uh, and it, and they don't accept your authority, then then what's going on? You're also selling another product, which is delayed gratification to all the looky-loos and all the people on the outskirts, whether it be a girlfriend, a wife, an interested party that's family member, or someone who is just seeing the most interesting thing they're going to see today. It's the worst day of somebody's life, and it's the most interesting thing that somebody else is going to see today. So I'm also selling you, I need you to hold off on your curiosity in a way that I may not have a legal authority to, to, to offer, but I'm going to ask you to do so for your safety, and I'm going to make it worth your while because of the following. You don't get shot in the butt. And I don't have to go do CPR on you or your friend. That would be really good for me. And it might be good for you as well because I'm pretty good at patching people up and I'm pretty good at stopping death when uh, someone has a non-fatal gunshot wound. But if you take one in the chest, you're going to have a really, really rotten day. And if there's a stray round, like, and you went running past my barricade, I may or may not be responsible for it, but you sure as hell are because you're going to have some real problems. So you sell it and it's not hard. It's not a hard thing to do to have this reasonable interaction with reasonable people. But we don't hire people skills in the FBI, it turns out. I saw that over and over in the interrogation room. We just don't. No, no. no. I mean, like, we, we kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Like the, the phase two process of getting hired by the FBI is just assessing your ability to become a manager. Can you navigate the process of claiming responsibility and credit for things that you were not involved with? And Peripheral and, involvement. Yes, or enhancing or misrepresenting what your involvement was in things to make yourself look good. That's phase two in the FBI. And phase two, for people's understanding, the first phase is a test to screen out the applicants, who's qualified, who's not, who has the IQ enough to be, you know, do the job, whatever it is. And then the phase two is the actual like interview with other people. There's a writing assignment, things like that. And it actually assesses whether or not you could write a decent report in, in coherent English that uh, follows logically. By the way, I probably wrote like one of the better ones they've probably ever seen. Having read a lot of FBI agents writing, I'm always like, oh my God, <laughs> just like suboptimal. It's yeah, I mean, like it was- Police like, officers was yours, write more logical reports. Was yours the, uh, you're taking over a terrorist case and uh, you're drawing up ideas of like how you would take it to the next, what would you do to investigate recommendations? I don't remember it. I have That's no what idea what was. I wrote. I, all I know is I was sitting in the New York field office on the top of Federal Plaza there I was on the, like the 50th floor or whatever it is of the building. I was sitting there. There was like, I don't know, 40 people around me. And I had one of the, I, I used all the time because I used to write reports as a paramedic and the, the paramedic narrative is legally admissible. It is a testimonial document that it's like, these are the, the treatments I did at this time in this logical order. This is why you articulate both what you did and why. And so I did that. I broke down. This is what I see in the case. This is the, you know, this is my reasons for it. And so I did all that writing. I have no idea what the case thing was. I just remember looking around and seeing like people were done and I was thinking, None of you are getting hired. <laughs> like this is this is a federal job where writing things is most of what you do. It turns out probably they hired most of them. Uh, <laughs> even yeah, if they couldn't yeah. write. Hey, hey, I talked to a guy afterwards and uh, I said, "Hey, had the writing seg segment go for you?" And he was like, "I got overwhelmed. I didn't write anything at all. I just left it blank." Yeah, but he was actually a lateral move. He was actually in the federal government. I'm like, that checks. That checks. Yeah, they understand how the government works, and that the, the level is very low. <laughs> Uh, who knew? You and I thought we were joining the best. We th we were like Will Smith walking into the uh, Men in Black interview, and uh, it just wasn't. Yeah, at least we got to keep our fingerprints, man. That's it. That's true. They didn't buzz off my fingerprints. I need those. Actually, I'm dealing with right now. Um, I because I'm a gun guy, and we just talked about uh, gun safes. I am. I'm literally installing a suppressor quick mount on one of my rifles, and I have that fun thing that only pipe fitters and gun guys have, where the threads on one of my uh, weapon systems slice my fingers in like perfect concentric circles. It's like like fish gills, and I'm dealing with it, and it's been bothering me all night. I'm just like, I can't believe I did that dummy move where I grabbed the threads and tried to turn really hard and slice <laughs> myself up. But that is a thing. Yeah, I have weird fingerprints right now. They look like gills. 
Um, I want to I want to wrap this up. This has been a good Friday. I I do appreciate you jumping on like on the half of it. And uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed kind of hearing from Tom from um, from Secure It. I didn't know that he was a professional musician before. I think that's really cool. If you ask people questions, you find out. It turns out that's the thing that is the most fun about this job and used to be the most fun about being in the FBI. You could actually have back and forth with a stranger and you would learn something about them. You'd find out why you have something in common, you know, and I don't know. I just don't see that those guys did that. Like, how are you going to establish rapport after that arrest, which looked like a shit show? No, you'll never, you never can. I mean, that's, Look, I, I don't know. Did they interview him even before they went and got the complaint or did they just go straight off of like, uh, we saw a white guy with a mask on throw an elbow and this guy's wearing multicam shorts. So it's probably him. I mean, I just. It was synchronized pushing. Synchronized pushing. That synchronized guy. pushing. Yeah, I don't know what synchronized pushing is either, right? I saw you DM me that. I'm like, I don't I don't know what synchronized pushing is. Everyone pushes that once. Heave, ho. I want just... you to act it out. Would you? Will you act it out for us Heave. and show us what synchronized pushing is? Oh. I'm thinking more of like raise the know. roof. that they were... <laughs> Push. It's, the just, roof. it's just so sad. It's so sad that this yeah, you is raise what, the roof together. This yeah. is what FBI agents are spending their time doing. And in the meantime, we're waiting for the next person who's coming across the border to come and blow something up or one of those hundred thousand Afghans that we didn't vet on the way in, which if you haven't listened to Double Trouble or our follow up with um, with Aaron Stevenson, go and listen. Who did we let in was the name of the episode. It goes back you know, a couple months. We, we don't know who we brought in here. I don't, we don't know who we brought in. So the FBI is letting people uh, from Syria and from other, you know, Uzbekistan run around in this country and God knows what they're doing. In the meantime, we're running after J6ers who are doing a heave ho and uh, pushing on a fence. It's just pretty wild to me and sad. Uh, Steve friend, thank you, sir. I look forward to talking to you again. We'll do it again next week, but uh, anything you have uh, parting shots that need to be uh, addressed. Uh, thanks to the Sarah fans. The, uh, the True Blue, my journey from beat cop to suspended FBI whistleblower. It hit number six last night on Amazon in the law enforcement category. So we're getting another surge. And it was enough for the publisher to order another 500 books. So I will be able to go to my book events uh, and not be empty handed. So thank you to everybody uh, for their support on that. And uh, I appreciate it very much. Oh, that is fantastic news, man. That's really, really good. I'm uh, happy to be there. It is. Look at that. Number six, making a new surge. So folks, you can find that on Amazon. If you search uh, Steve Friend book, if you search True Blue Steve, you will find all these things. I've done all those looks. Uh, we got a uh, we got a nice rumble rant here from K Quiet that says, 10 bucks, uh, keep up the good work. We do appreciate all of those. And we appreciate Eric Jason, who's been telling people, smash the like button, push the like button, uh, like the smash button, whatever you want to call it. There's a green thumbs up. If you can make it green when you leave, it will add a number plus one. We do appreciate those. It moves up our ranking with Rumble. And that is where we find you all every day. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have heard, you have been listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, which is streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas at 0930 every weekday and uh, we are most appreciative of you all leaving five-star reviews like this one here oh i think you got uh, yesterday's can you pull up the uh the new one ryan it's actually in monday yeah give me one second yeah give me one second too because i'll have to pull it back up here it is it's from uh free patriot tim was dropped in on the 28th it says congratulations i'm sure that's about the baby congratulations on the new addition to your family big smiles for you and your family may you and yours have a blessed and peaceful uh, be blessed with peace, love, and joy. That's from Free Patriot Tim. That's a really nice message on a Friday. We do appreciate that. I'm actually about to go enjoy some baby time right now. She is healthy. Her uh, her movements are all working. All the parts are working. We got peas and poops, which is a big deal when you have a new baby, as uh, many of you guys know. And uh, it's also a big deal that you guys are all joining us all the time. I know we had well over 700 in the live chat. So thank you for joining me. I hope you took something away from that conversation with Tom about residential security containers and you are making good choices. Uh, we may be working on something with uh, Secure It because I really do like them as a company and I chose to spend my own money there. So that's one of the easy ways that we can have nice people come in and 
you guys can get a little access to some of the, the thoughts that happen behind people who are really into this kind of thing. If you're a new gun owner, check out some of their stuff. I think it's worth it. We will uh, put it in the show notes. And uh, once again, hope you guys have a wonderful weekend and make sure you are subscribed to this channel because you will see us again on Monday and we will see you then. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.